Welcome to Rebel Spirit Radio, exploring the frontiers of spirituality, consciousness, the esoteric, and humanity's sacred relationship with a living earth. I'm your host, Nick Mather, and in this episode, I am joined by Paul Levy, author of several books, including the recently published Watiko, Healing the Mind Virus That Plagues Our World. Paul discusses the nature of Watiko as a psycho-spiritual disease and its relation to Jung's concept of the shadow. He also talks about the shamanic archetype of the wounded healer, the path of the bodhisattva, and the necessity of connecting with our creative nature and waking from the spell of separateness as the antidotes to the mind virus of Watiko, which he argues is an ally to our collective awakening. Paul Levy is a pioneer in the field of spiritual emergence and has been practicing Tibetan Buddhism for over 35 years and was the coordinator of the Portland chapter of the Padmasambhava Buddha Center for over 20 years. Paul is the founder of the Awakening in the Dream community in Portland, Oregon. He is the author of several books, including The Quantum Revelation, A Radical Synthesis of Science and Spirituality, Dispelling Watiko, Breaking the Curse of Evil, Awakened by Darkness, When Evil Becomes Your Father, The Madness of George W. Bush, A Reflection of Our Collective Psychosis, and the recently published Watiko, Healing the Mind Virus That Plagues Our World. Paul, welcome to Rebel Spirit Radio. Yeah, hi, I'm so happy to be here. Thank you. Yes, well, thank you. I, I have to say I am incredibly excited to speak to you today about your writings on Watiko. I was amazed to read in your new book things that I've been uh, kind of intuiting and uh, ruminating on for a while now. Um, and you even used some of the language and symbolism that I've been utilizing. You know, so you draw from the Tibetan tradition, uh, Gnosticism, uh, even the Western uh, esoteric and magical tradition a bit. Uh, however, you go much deeper than I have and uh, approach it from several other angles. So to start digging in and for the audience, what is Watiko? Yeah, that is the question. And um, so it's, it's a word that comes from the Native American tradition and it really, it, it has to do with this cannibalizing spirit so in a sense, it's really, um, you know, one could say it's a psycho-spiritual disease of the soul, and it's the origin of all of the evil that we're playing out both in our own lives, interpersonally with others, and collectively as a species. And um, it's at the bottom, it's at the, the root of, because Watiko is a collective psychosis. And, and by the way, we're in the middle of a collective psychosis in case we haven't noticed. And it's at the root of the very madness and the very self-destructive evil that we're playing out all over the planet. It's, it's a absolutely profound idea. It's not just an idea. It's way more than an idea. And, um, and it's a quantum phenomena in that encoded within Watiko, which can be likened to this mind, sort of this, this virus of the mind, it's quantum in the sense that encoded within it is its own vaccine, is its own medicine. But so there's a superposition of states, both the deepest evil and this incredible blessing and gift, but how it manifests depends on if we have the recognition of what it's showing us, what it's revealing. It's this revelatory phenomena. 
and and it works through the blind spots of our unconscious because it's actually a form of psychic blindness but it's a really peculiar form of psychic blindness in that it's a blindness that actually believes that it's sighted and it believes that it's more sighted than people who actually have sight and it has no idea that it's blind and and it's an all-around blindness in that it, it, it you know it's oblivious to that it's blind it can't see its own when people are afflicted with it we can't see our own shadow we see it in projected form out on others but we also can't see our light you know so what i'm trying to do with my work is trying to help people to see it because we all have it in potential it pervades the collective unconscious of our species so if we think and it feeds off of fear and separation so if we think oh so and so has watiko and we don't well then that point of view is an expression that we ourselves have fallen under the spell of watiko because it feeds off of separation and as soon as we see somebody is separate then fear arises and that's the you know that's the food for watiko so the idea is is to see how in a sense not only how watiko operates in the world because it's an inner disease of the soul that actually is somehow in a magical way able to extend itself out into the external world configuring events so as to act itself out via the medium of the external world but it's an inner disease of the soul and what that means is that one way of beginning to see it is when you begin to recognize the correlation between what's playing out in the world when you see it symbolically as a dream and what's actually happening inside of our psyche because the thing about watiko is that it's this dreamed up phenomena and it's actually helping us to to actually to have the recognition that we're dreaming that this is a collectively shared dream but if we don't have the recognition of what it's showing us you know it's going to kill us like as is evidence you know we're we're kind of enacting collective suicide on the world stage so i'm just trying to point out oh yeah there's something encoded within what's playing out and when you see this as a collective dream the language of dreams are symbols and when you develop symbolic awareness just like when you work on a dream at night you interpret it symbolically that's to begin to cultivate the eyes that are seeing what you go and when you see it you take away its power and you empower yourself so it you know doesn't want that it will do everything and anything it can to make sure that you don't see it but what i'm pointing out is that oh but that's the next step of our evolution that here's this invisible bug that if we don't actually recognize it it's killing us but in code it's holding our creative power it's helping us to to connect with our creative agency and so that's in a sense what the book is about okay wonderful there's uh quite a bit to unpack out of all of that uh right. and you mentioned things that i wanted to address anyway uh but i think it's important just to take a moment to acknowledge the reality of the fact that there is this collective madness going on and for me it has become very clear over the past you know, 15, 20 years, especially in regards to any kind of meaning, any meaningful attempt to address the climate emergency. Uh, and it just seems to me, it's like, this is insanity. And like you said, no. you know, it is collective suicide. 
And one of the things I wanted to ask you is when did you first start thinking that there was something like Watiko occurring and what confirmed it for you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, first off, you're totally right, whether it's the climate emergency or the whole the response to the pandemic or the financial system or the political system or on and on and on. I mean, you know, there's overwhelming evidence that we're in the middle of a collective psychosis. And for me, how I, because I didn't discover Watiko, I mean, it's every spiritual tradition in the history of the world is pointing at Watiko. They're just, they have different names for it, different symbols for it. For me, so I'm just a translator, in other words, and I first discovered it, you know, in my own life, in my personal life, with my, in my family. And, you know, this was when I was in my early 20s. And I, you know, without going into the whole story, my father wound up, you know, just like anybody who doesn't deal with their, with their abuse, they just enacted unconsciously on the next generation. And, you know, my father did that. And I was the recipient. I'm the only child of him acting out his abuse. And it created such incredible, just suffering, just over the top suffering that I went from, and here I was in my early twenties from being a highly accomplished kid to not being able to live my life. And I went, I was just so overwhelmed with the intensity of the abuse, the emotional, psychological abuse. And I went inwards. That was the way I dealt with it. And just really assuming the position of being the witness for my own mind. And then after a couple of years of doing that really intensely, I, I had a full-blown spiritual awakening, the early stages of which I was so, it was like having this radical personality change. So in the early stages of which I so freaked people out, um, that I got immediately within the first 24 hours hospitalized and diagnosed as mentally ill. Oh, you know, you have this newly discovered chemical imbalance. And that was a whole nother phase of my descent because for the next, you know, a little bit over a year, I was in and out of mental hospitals, maybe four or five times and always diagnosed with this chemical imbalance. And I knew I was having a spiritual awakening. It couldn't have been more obvious from my point of view. And that's what saved me. The fact that I, you know, that I was really clear on what my own experience was, but why I tell that story is so not only was my father, I, I didn't have the language for it then, but he was literally taken over by Watiko and he was in a way embodying it and acting it out and incarnating it. But then when I got into the psychiatric system, I couldn't believe the madness, the absolute over the top insanity and abuse of psychiatry. And the what I began to, to recognize was, oh my God, it's the same. It was like this non-local evil force that had come through the person of my father and then had changed channels and was coming through the system of psychiatry. And I began to, to have the recognition. It's the same energy, just, you know, it had changed its channels. And that's when I began to first get the fragrance of Watiko that, oh my God, it pervades the non-local field and it transcends space and time and it can shape shift, you know, um, in a way to act itself out. And, and then as I began to study this and to contemplate this, and it completely destroyed my entire family. I haven't had a family for over for 20 years. And, um, and it almost just totally drove me crazy. But the whole while I was, you know, like creating maps and articulating and trying to understand what I was seeing and more and more it got in focus 
particularly with what's happening in the world, in the collective, in the macrocosm on the world stage, that, oh, it's the same non-local evil force. And um, that's playing out that's in some way related to our mind. So that's when I began to get an inkling of what he I didn't have the name for it at first. I actually called it um, malignant egophrenia, M-E disease, me disease. It's a misidentification of who we think we are. And that's in essence, and I can talk about that, that's in essence, the real essence of Watiko. And, but then when I found the Native American tradition and I realized, oh, they were tracking this and they had the name for this. That's when I began to, to really understand, oh my God, the profundity of this idea. And one final thing about that, in the collected works, Jung talks about that in a time of collective madness, there's only one thing that can save us. And he, he calls it um, new symbolic ideas. And Watiko is exactly that. It's a new symbolic idea. It's a saving idea. That's not just an idea. People think ideas are just these, these abstract things. No, ideas are the way we see the world and the way we dream up our world. They're the lens through which we give meaning and interpret our world and create ourselves. And as such, they have enormous creative power in creating our experience. And um, so my whole, my, my work is trying to, to introduce people, to turn people on to the psychoactivating. It's like a psychedelic that continually just comes on. I mean, I've already written, I have a third book coming out on Watiko next year. I just had one come out this week. You know, I've already written one and I'm already starting on my fourth book. It just, it's so mind blowing and mind expanding when you tap into what it's revealing to us. So I really discovered it from my personal experience. And then I realized, oh my God, this is a way of helping us get a handle on the madness that's playing out in our world. You mentioned Jung and in regards to Jung, is Watiko an archetype? And I also wanted to ask about the relationship to the Jungian concept of the shadow. Yeah. And I know that Jung, you know, there's the, indi- the, the individual shadow, there's the collective shadow. Uh, yeah. You certainly talk about projection in the book um, as well. And one of the things I was wondering about was, is this more than just the shadow, what Jung referred to as yeah. the shadow. Well, Jung, you know, it's very related to the shadow. I mean, and there's the personal shadow, the collective shadow, like you mentioned, but then the archetypal shadow. And the archetypal shadow isn't personal. It's transpersonal. It's the dark side of God. It's, you know, symbolized by Satan or the devil or different traditions have their personification of it. And yeah, so what Tico, it operates through the collective shadow, but it actually connects with and interfaces with the deeper archetype of the dark side of the divine. So from that point of view, it's, it's not just a personal, you know, sort of energy, but it's an archetypal energy and archetypes are formless. You, you know, there's no one who's ever seen an archetype, but we, we can track an archetype by its effects. And then we can trace back, oh, there are certain effects and they're coming from this formless thing that we call archetypes. And that's a way of understanding what Tico and um, and just, you know, talking about the work of, you know, with in the collective works, Jung is continually talking about Watiko, but he didn't have any name for it. 
you know, and he calls it a zillion different names. But the one name that he uses the most often is totalitarian psychosis. Okay. Now think about what Watiko is. It's an inner disease of the soul that very simply put, it actually is able to act itself out via events in the outer world. So when an individual gets under the, the thrall of Watiko, Watiko in a sense subsumes all of the healthy parts of the psyche into serving its agenda. It colonizes the psyche. It hijacks the executive function, sets up this shadow government, dictates to the ego. And all the while, the person has no idea that something is in their driver's seat and is taking them over. Now, what I just described, that is the very process that's playing out in our body politic of the world, that with this whole totalitarian you know, energy that's creeping over our planet, that's actually reflecting how Watika works within an individual psyche. So just seeing that, you see, anytime we see the correlation between what's happening in the outer world and our inner psychological process, that's when we're beginning to see Watiko. Because if you remember, it's a form of blindness. And it's a form of blindness that it, it, it operates through the projective tendencies of the mind. We're, all, we're always projecting onto the inkblot. Think about a dream. A dream is a projection. We project onto the waking inkblot and instantaneously, it just reflects back the meaning pattern or the interpretation that we impute onto the inkblot. And so what Watiko does, in a sense, it hypnotizes us via our mind's own intrinsic projective tendencies. And then we've become, we become entranced in, you know, to actually believe that we exist you know, as this separate self with these limitations in a way that we don't. You know, and the thing about Watiko, you see, it it can't steal our soul. It has, you know, I mean, it just doesn't have that power, but it can trick us into giving our soul away. So then we don't remember who we are, we identify with who we're not, and then we dissociate from our creative agency. That's the recipe for Watiko, and that's utter madness. And that's what's playing out on the world stage. Yeah, it's um, you know, as within, so without. And uh, I really appreciate the uh, connection between uh, what's going on internally and this movement towards totalitarianism, especially because for Jung, his whole uh, system is based on wholeness. And it seems like, you know, there's this, you know, to achieve psychological balance, you know, we need to be whole individuals. And I see this totalitarianism then as the shadow of that, um, where it's, you know, we're not whole inside and yet we're going to project this outside. Yeah. Well, that, what you just said is so right on because it makes me think, you know, if this were a dream and I'm saying it's not in a metaphorical sense, it, it's a, it's literally, this is a collectively shared dream that we're all dreaming up together. We're, we're dreaming up what And if this is a dream, and if we interpreted it as such, like say if we had this dream at night and we wake up and we write it down in our dream journal and we're like, oh my God, I have this, this trippy dream where there's this pandemic and there's this totalitarian you know, energy taking over our planet. Like, how would we interpret that dream? And if somebody had that dream and came into my office, I would say, well, you know, it seems to me like you're not picking up consciously your own creative power. 
And so then you're outsourcing it. And of course, when we disconnect from our creative agency, you know, the state or other external sources are more than happy to pick up our own creative power, you know, to serve its agenda and to use against ourselves. So that would be one simple way of interpreting, you know, if this were a dream. And what that's pointing at, it's pointing at one of the solutions for Watiko, and that is for any of us to connect with our creativity. Because you see, Watiko itself has no creativity at all. It's a master impersonator. So one way of understanding this, you know, like I was saying, it's in all of the sacred spiritual texts. It's in the Bible. It's in the apocryphal text. You know, they, they talk about a counterfeiting spirit. And interestingly, any notion of a counterfeiting spirit got excised out of the Bible because I point out in one of my books that Watiko was on the editorial board and it wanted to make sure to edit out any reference to itself. And so what happens is, so the apocryphal text talks about a counterfeiting spirit. So you see, Watiko has no power over us at all over our true nature. When we're in touch with who we are, Watiko is powerless. So here's what it does. Here's its strategy. It actually creates this, this simulation of us. It impersonates us. It puts us on, right? Like putting on a suit of clothes or putting us on means to fool us. And if we're not awake in that moment, we then identify with its version of ourselves oh, I'm limited, I'm wounded, I'm traumatized, or I'm grandiose and, you know, whatever. And as soon as we identify with its fictitious version of ourselves, that it, got, that it has us, because then it can manipulate that image like a puppet on a string. You know, so what Tico, you see, is this create, it, it both um, spurns our creativity, but it spurs it also in that, you know, it has no creativity, so it plugs into our creativity because we're creative beings by nature, but it it turns our own creativity against us in a way that serves its agenda. And, and its agenda is is not something um, that is on our side. And, um, but the point is, is that the medicine, the kryptonite for Watiko is for any of us to really connect with our nature and our nature is creative. And then the more we connect with our creative nature, the more we express ourselves creatively. And the more we express ourselves creatively, the more we know our nature. It's a positive feedback loop that absolutely Watiko becomes powerless. And that's the solution. That's the medicine for all the myriad world crises is for, for us, each one of us individually and collectively, you know, and to connect with each other, to really tap into our nature, to access our creative spirit, you know, and I, I would actually point out that's the whole point of Watiko. Watiko is an ally. It's helping us to do that. If Watiko didn't exist, we would have to invent it. It's actually helping the evolution of our species. One of the things that I have often lamented is the the lack of creativity and the lack of imagination. And the way I usually phrase it is I personally sometimes feel like my imagination has been colonized um, yeah. and that others, you know, it's like just through, you know, social media and not even social media, but even before, you know, social media with right. media in general. And I recognize that need to um, not identify with the 
uncreative aspects and to try to nurture the creativity. I think that is uh, incredibly yeah. important. One of the things that I find somewhat concerning, especially in spiritual movements, you know, you mentioned how uh, the, in the biblical text and the apocryphal text, there was this idea of the counterfeiting spirit. I see a movement now as well in what I would refer to as uh, new age communities, where you see this focus on light workers. Right. And I think that working in the light's important, but I always want to say, but you can't ignore the shadow. You have to have the both. And it seems to me that this focus on light at the expense of shadow is part of this disease. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, totally. And I'm right with you. The whole like the, the love and light thing, you know, because one of the ways of talking about what Tico is that it feeds off of when we, you know, turn away from it, when we turn a blind eye. And for people who are like, oh, I don't want to focus on the darkness, on evil, on whatever, and they're just going to focus on love and light. Well, if they're doing that, if there's any part of them that's avoiding what that darkness brings up in them, by turning away in avoidance, they're unwittingly feeding the very darkness that they're turning a blind eye to you know, and they're feeding Watiko, you know, so it's really important to come to terms with our own darkness, you know, the darkness in the world, you know, to the extent that we're able. And of course, we what we don't want to do is become too fascinated by it, because yeah, that can feed it. But when we see the darkness, both out in the world, and in ourselves, you know, and the way it works in ourselves, typically, when we'll you see the thing about Watiko, it's a non local phenomena. And one way of understanding that is that, so say if we see somebody who's at a given moment taken over by Watiko, and, um, and you know, like I was saying before, if we think they're separate, then that's one way we're feeding Watiko. But if in seeing them taken over, it's non-local in that we're going to have a reaction. Mm -hmm. And then if we don't really bring consciousness to our reaction, but just indulge in it as a result of seeing the Watiko out there, then we're just as much a vector to propagate Watiko as they are. And so the idea being is when you see how Watiko works non-locally through the field and our unconscious inner reactions, then when you see it, you realize, okay, now I see you and I don't have to become overly focused on you and I'm not turning a blind eye. Now I actually see how you work both in my own mind and out in the world being a sovereign being, I can now, I'm the one who decides how I want to invest my awareness and how I want to invest my attention. And I can now invest my awareness in creating the world I want to live in. You see, that actually dispels Watiko because it feeds off of our attention. One of the key things about Watiko is to, to realize how we're colluding with it. We're participating in its creation. It has no existence. It doesn't even exist at all. If we, if people hear about this mind virus and get all afraid, no, 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 that's not what I'm saying. It is no independent intrinsic existence at all. And yet it can kill us. You see, that's the paradox because it doesn't exist in any way that's separate from our own consciousness. And what this is pointing at is that the incredible, vast creative power of our minds, of our creative imagination, of just our being. 
And to the extent we're not like associated with that, so as an example, if I, I know people who think, oh, I'm not creative, and then they will absolutely dream up all the evidence they need to confirm their point of view. And I would point out, my God, you're so unbelievably creative that you're using your creativity to literally create the experience that you're not creative. And then you create all the proof confirming your point of view in a feedback loop whose origin is your own creative mind. That's how creative we are. One of the ideas that I was mulling over um, before becoming aware of your work, uh, well, there were two in particular, and you address both of these in the book. Uh, one is I always describe myself as having a Gnostic turpitude, uh, which is a phrase I shamelessly stole from uh, the uh, author Nabokov. Uh, but I would look at what was going on in the world and I was constantly like, you know, that demiurge and his damn archons. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, this idea that we are being imprisoned and the Gnostic idea that we have to wake up to this reality. Uh, but the other was something that I only recently came upon was the idea of the egregore. And this is, I think, very pertinent to what you were just saying, is that the egregore is a collective creation in collective consciousness. So, right. Well, first off, like with the archons in Gnosticism, I mean, that's the equivalent to what Tico, they, the Gnostics were really switched on to this mountainous mind parasite, because that's what Watiko is. And they called it the archon. And etymologically, that means governor or the one who's the ruler. And, and yeah, and like all the sacred texts that I know about, they talk about like the prince of this world is Satan. Like we are imprisoned in a certain way, but a lot of us don't even know we're imprisoned. So the first step of becoming aware of that, of our imprisonment is, you know, or freeing ourselves from being imprisoned is to become aware that we're imprisoned. And then like the egregore, that's this esoteric term. And in Tibetan Buddhism, they have a similar idea. It's called tulpa. And, you know, the practitioner will actually visualize a particular entity to the point where it'll materialize, it'll take on form, and it'll be as if it has an autonomous, independent existence. And, and in the teachings, they say, and that's like an egregore, but, you know, egregores can also be collective, like we're dreaming up collectively this egregore that's striding the world stage. But the point is, at least in Tibetan Buddhism, they say, yeah, it, it's hard to conjure up and I choose my words carefully when I say conjure up because it's a magical um, right. Um, and we're all magicians. I mean, that's what quantum physics is showing us, you know. But um, the idea being as hard as, as it is to conjure up an egregore, it's harder to then dissolve it, you know. And But what I'm pointing at is that when there are a sufficient number of us who wake up to the nature of our situation, that we're having a collective dream, and really get in touch with our creative, our, you know, agency and, and this dreaming power that is intrinsic to our nature, you know, then we can, in a real way, change the dream we're having. And that's not like new age, magical woo-woo thinking. No, that's what this is all about. That's when you see this as a dream, all of this is reflecting back to us that we ourselves are the dreamer. I mean, concurrently, we're being dreamed by, you know, whatever you could, you know, I call it a deeper dreaming self, or you could call, call it the self or Christ or Buddha. We're the emanation, we're its dream, and we're not separate from it. We're actually the dreamer of the dream. And, but we've fallen so asleep by our dreaming power that we've entranced ourselves 
And what I'm trying to bring forth is, hey, we can wake up to our intro. It's like we have this magical wand. We already possess everything we need to, to wake up and to heal the myriad world crises that we are collectively creating. This is great news. We already have. It, it, it's not like we have to first gain possession of something. No, we already have it, but we either don't know we have it or we don't know how to how to use it in a compassionate, skillful way. I've thought in the past, uh, this is an exercise I started doing sort of spontaneously, um, probably when I was in my mid-20s of kind of what you're talking about as looking at the world as if it's a dream and sort of just trying to almost like interpret it uh, and all events mm -hmm. as if they were dreams and dream symbolism. And I think there's important power into that. Uh, so I appreciate that you're also making that case. It's something that came to me sort of, I don't know if I would say naturally, it came after being exposed to the ideas of Carl Jung. But one of the questions I had is, can individuals wake themselves up to this or does someone have to wake them up? The analogy I'm always thinking of is uh, Plato's allegory of the cave, you know, where you have the prisoners, you know, who are facing the back wall of the cave. And I know it's often popular for people to say that a prisoner frees themselves, but that's not what Plato says. Um, someone comes and frees the prisoner uh, and then yeah. turns them well, around towards yeah. the light. Well, in that parable of Plato's cave, the people in the cave who are just seeing the reflections of the outside world on the walls of the cave and think that that's the reality, they don't have any other, they don't have a reference point outside of that. So, you know, so from that point of view, yeah, it's like somebody who's actually tasted the, you know, the actual reality who has that freedom, you know, they're in the role of, of trying to introduce people who, who are still entranced into the flatland reality of the wall of the, the, the flat images on the wall of the cave. And one way to think about that is that it's not just that our species is asleep. Yeah, our species is asleep, but it's as if there's some sort of evil force that's invested in keeping us asleep. Mm -hmm. You know, and in the same way where it's not hard at night in a dream to have this lucid moment or to, to recognize you're dreaming that that can happen. Mm -hmm. And it's not that difficult. But then it's very because of our propensity to be entranced by the forms of the dream. It's it's fairly easy to get absorbed back into the dream and forget what we had realized, i.e. that it's all just our own energy. And um, so being a practitioner, you know, when we're all practitioners, the idea is to, to really to have that, 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 that lucid moment to recognize the dreamlike nature and then to try to stabilize it. And then in doing that, it's incredibly helpful. Like why, why not enlist other people to help each other, to co collectively, collaboratively help each other to deepen our awakening. I mean, that I've created a whole community. That's what it's about, you know, to help each other to, to awaken in the dream. And, and yeah, maybe I'll be giving out certain teachings or reflections at one moment. And then the next moment I've fallen asleep. And then the people in the group help me to, to pop out of my, you know, state of, of being, you know, being absorbed in the forms of the dream. So, yeah, you know, we, um, 
basically, you know, it's the idea in Buddhism, they talk about the three jewels, the Buddha, Dharma, Sangha, the teacher teaching, and uh, the Sangha is the community of fellow awakening beings. And the idea of the real Sangha is that, yes, yeah, not a competitive sport, we can all help each other to stabilize and to deepen and strengthen our awakening. That's the real Sangha of the Buddha. And, um, and it's not like you have to be a Buddhist to be part of the Sangha. No, just you know, anybody, even the word Buddha, it literally translates, translates as, you know, he, you know, who is awakened to the dreamlike nature. That's the meaning of the word. So when there are enough of us who are like, you know, having experiences of that, we can get in sync with each other and have like an agreement or a contract to help each other, to individuate, to help each other, to, to deepen our awakening, like I've been saying. And I don't see any reason why not to do that. Right. And I, I like how you just said deepening our awakening, uh, because I've often thought that an error that we hold on to in, well, just say in the Western world, I suppose, is this idea that once awakened, always awake. I personally see it as an ongoing process that uh, it's not, you may have that moment of awakening, but that doesn't mean that you're always awakened. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think, you know, that's a really good idea just to contemplate for a moment. I, I think of like the Dalai Lama, His Holiness Dalai Lama, and he's openly saying, yeah, I'm always expanding my altruism and my compassion, you know, and I, I'm fortunate in that I know I have these great teachers, some of the greatest enlightened beings in the world in there always doing practice. They're always deepening, opening their heart even more and cultivating more awareness. And it's such, I think, uh, uh, this mistake to think, oh yeah, you become awake and then that's it. And yeah, that might be possible, but, you know, and that's our nature, you know, we are awake in one hand. So it's a little bit hard to, to language, but the idea being saying, say, if you're, if you awaken right now and you're like this fully awakened being, right? Okay, great you're not separate from the universe, which means there are 8 billion other humans and they have a lot of unresolved issues and stuff and shadow and wounds and trauma. And if you're an awakened being, you're interfacing with that. You're going to feel that you're going to take that on. And that, that brings up the, the shamanic archetype because a shaman, you know, and that is the wounded healer and we're all wounded healers or shamans in training. The idea is, is that what does the shaman do? When they work with someone, they literally take on the illness out of their incredible empathy, out of the part of them that's awake. And taking it on means they have it out with, but it also means take it within themselves and they fall ill. That's the shamanic archetype. But if they stay ill, then they're in need of a shaman. No, the idea being that them falling ill becomes this the portal through which they actually even more deeply connect with their wholeness, the wholeness of, of the self. And, and then by, by, by them doing that non-locally, energetically, that actually makes that healing and that experience of wholeness more actually um, available for other people to, to access. And so the idea being, you know, like I'm saying, if somebody's like super awake, you know, we're 100% awake, yeah, they're going to also be like not separate from and experiencing and feeling all of the, the sickness and the darkness and, and the unconsciousness, but they don't, but they do it in a way where they don't get caught by it, where they're able to transmute it 
you know, and turn it into medicine. And that's really what a practitioner is. It sounds a lot like um, uh, the Bodhisattva path as well. It's exactly, it's exactly that. Like the Bodhisattva and the interesting, a beautiful definition of Bodhisattva is someone in the process of awakening, Mm -hmm. you know, and who among us is not in that process. We're all these Bodhisattvas in training. And the idea being the Bodhisattva is about to enter into, into Nirvana, you know, to attain full enlightenment for themselves. And then they look back and they see all their fellow suffering, you know, whatever parts of themselves, brothers and sisters, 8 billion of, of, you know, just our species, a lot of whom are deeply in suffering. And they realize, oh, my God, I'm, I can't enter nirvana from my own personal enlightenment until I bring everybody else there first. Because now that they've woken up, they recognize that there's no separation, that all of those other beings who are suffering are just parts of them that are suffering. So that's when they, you know, commit to, you know, the whole idea of the Bodhisattva vow, that they're here to be in service you know, they're, they're here to help. And it's only when samsara, which is the endless suffering, the endless cycle of birth and death, um, you know, gets emptied, then the bodhisattva will then enter nirvana, but not until everybody else is, is, you know, awakened first. I find the teachings of Buddhism very, very helpful. And uh, this is something that I've done uh, quite a bit, especially uh, during the past several years in this country, uh, because we're so divided and there's so much shadow projection going on. And what I personally always try to do is, for example, um, I, I try not to make the podcast too political, um, but you know, I, I personally loathe Donald Trump, but I made a point of never saying I hated him. And my background in my doctoral work was on virtue theory. And I studied the uh, role of virtue in the founding of the American Republic. And I understood the necessity of it. And I tried to identify virtues of Trump and I couldn't find any. Uh, I could find a whole bunch of vices. And so what I did though, was I'm like, okay, I don't like his arrogance. Then I turned around to me and examined my own arrogance. And, you know, I didn't like the kind of willful ignorance. Well, how am I willfully ignorant? And it seems to me that, you know, when doing that, I'm then able to develop great compassion for him. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. And um, that's what I mean when you see somebody else who in a given moment is, you know, taking over and acting out Watiko, if you see them as separate from you, you know, then you're under the spell of Watiko. But if you recognize that they're just actually reflecting that part of you. And and interestingly, the psychological process that underlies Watiko is scapegoating, is shadow projection. Right. In the sense, in the way, it's a good way of understanding how Watiko works. So say if I'm in a dream, in a night dream, right? And just imagine that. And imagine that I'm not fully owning and connecting with my own shadow you know, and um, so I'm, I'm split from my own shadow, I'm projecting it outside of myself. And what is a dream, but just a projection of my own mind. So as I like project out, split off my own shadow, in the dream, it's going to get dreamed up. There's no way around that. And either somebody, a figure will walk in, carrying my projection, or a group of people will carry it. 
and and they will provide me with all the evidence I need that now the shadow is out there because look, there it is, they're embodying it. And so once I have that evidence that confirms my viewpoint, then I just even am more fixed in that in that point of view of projecting the evil out there, you know, because I'm just identified with the light and I, well, there it is, the evil is out there. And the more I do that, the more they then embody that evil, which just confirms me. It's, an, it's a self-replicating, self-reinforcing feedback loop whose origin is my own mind. And, but by doing that, then at a certain point, when I amplify that process, of course, what do I try to do? I try to get rid of that person who's, you know, reflecting back and carrying and embodying my own darkness, because that's an externalization. There's this dramatization in the outer world of the inner process of wanting to exterminate and extinguish and to get rid of my own darkness. So now I'm playing out in the outer world in trying to destroy the person who I see as being evil, the very internal process that started the whole process of, you know, shadow projecting, shadow projecting. And by doing that, well, guess what? Then I become possessed by the very evil that I'm trying to destroy, you know? And that's a really simple way uh, and the psychological understanding of how, of how Watiko works right there. It also reminds me quite a bit of Jung's essay um, that he wrote. I think it was, I don't, I, I don't remember if he wrote it during World War II. I don't remember the placement, but Wotan. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I wonder if when he wrote Wotan uh, about the German people, was that with Tico? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I talk about, you know, the whole like the, the Wotan archetype and I'm super familiar with that, that particular essay. And he was saying, yeah, that archetype of, you know, like the, the Votan figure, it, you know, it can possess, it's an archetypal energy that can possess. And it's behind like people who just go berserk and run amok and, and be, are taken over by some sort of archetypal affect and then act it out. And, um, and you know, it can really be at the, he was pointing it out that it was at the bottom um, of, you know, the, of, of what was happening in, in Germany, you know, with the wars. And um, you see, because the thing that totally segues into Watiko, because Watiko, it's this archetypal, daimonic, transpersonal energy. And what I mean by that is that it's not just personal, it's of a higher dimension. And being this daimonic energy, what is a daimonic energy? It can literally possess a person. It can get in their driver's seat of their vehicle, and they then unwittingly you know, are taken over such that they then become the instrument to unwittingly act it out. And, and not just an individual person, but a daimonic energy can take over a group of people or a nation or a species. Mm-hmm. And, and so that's in a way what's happening is that, you know, the Watiko, now understand, well, here's something else to, because I have a zillion ways of trying to point at Watiko, because right. the whole idea is ways to see it. When you begin to see it, that's when you take away its power and you empower yourself. And um, the Watiko, think about it that we all have experienced trauma. Well, what happens in trauma? You know, something happens that's overwhelming to the ego. And so we split, we dissociate. And, and then if we don't do our work and integrate that, that split off part, that 
dissociated part then develops a seeming autonomy of its own. Um, the, you know, in psychology speak, it would be called an, auto an, uh, an autonomous complex. An autonomous complex, that's what the ancients called a demon, interestingly enough. In this autonomous complex, it will manifest as if it's an autonomous being with a will and a life independent of ours. And yet it's just a split off part of us that we've compartmentalized and then it'll manifest as some sort of inner demon. And, um, and then at a certain point, we can actually, it'll take us over from behind our awareness and we then unwittingly become the conduit for it to act itself out in the world. And, um, you know, that's underlying the, the Votan archetype and that's um, a way, another way of describing Watiko because it's a daimonic energy, but the, the daimon, etymologically, it means the, the, the inner voice, the guiding spirit. It's our angel, it's our muse, it's our genius. And um, it'll help us to find our vocation and help us to connect with our voice. And um, yet, if we aren't in conscious relationship to that daimon, it consolates negatively and becomes a demon. And hidden and coded in that daimon is our creative spirit. So, um, yeah, all of this is just contemplations, hopefully helping us to begin to get in focus what we're dealing with, you know, in the Watiko epidemic, because it's a, it's a psychic epidemic. Like the thing that Jung kept on warning about, the greatest danger that faces our species are psychic epidemics. If millions or even, even billions, I would add, you know, if people fall into their unconscious in a way, in a form of collective madness, we can destroy ourselves. And that's what we're doing. But I'm pointing out is that encoded in that process is this, you know, it's like this revelation. And but if we don't rep the same thing in a dream, a dream is like a, comp a compensatory mechanism. It's like teaching us something. It's giving us a message like an angel is a messenger. It's actually giving us this message. But if we don't get the message of the dream, well, guess what? Then it recurs again and again and again, and it keeps on amping up until we get the message. And when you see this is the dream, yeah, there's a message. We're literally dreaming up the madness, the destruction that's playing out, because it's showing us something about who we are, you know, about our incredible creative agency. But if we don't get it, we're guaranteed to just dream up a recurring dream in more amplified form until we get the message. It seems to me that, uh, you know, you mentioned uh, revelation. Uh, I, I, I think in terms of the word of the apocalypse, which literally means out of darkness. Yeah. And it also, with what you've been saying, reminds me quite a bit of, uh, I know this is in the Gospel of Thomas. I think it's in uh, one of the other Gospels as well where Jesus says, you know, the heaven, uh, the kingdom of heaven is on earth, but men do not see it. Which right. It's back to that idea of blindness that you were speaking. Yeah, about. yeah, yeah. No, totally. And these are apocalyptic times, like the, something is being un, unveiled or revealed to us. And the Kabbalah talks about that, that true light emerges out of the darkness. Right. You know, and um, yeah. And, and, you know, psychologically speaking, the apocalypse has to do with the incarnation of the self. That's what the psychological, that's the meaning, you know, of the apocalypse, of the coming of the Messiah. And so the idea is, is like, yeah, the second coming is happening. Like um, Steiner, Rudolf Steiner is talking about that. The greatest momentous event of this time that we're living through is what he calls the incarnation of the etheric Christ. 
And so the second coming is not just like, you know, here's this one man who's going to come down and save us. But no, it's it's that second coming, that Messiah, it's actually incarnating through the unconscious, through our species. And but Steiner also said, but before the this most world transforming momentous event that's happening, i.e. the incarnation of the etheric Christ can actually take place. It we have to, there's going to be an encounter with the beast. And that's what that's a way of contextualizing what's happening in this uh, in the Watiko epidemic. We're being confronted with evil, you know, both personal evil and collective evil. And, you know, we have to have enough courage, you know, and we each have a different role, you know, but you see, the thing that creates poison is if in our individual personal process, if something is coming up to be made conscious and we actually don't look, if we become artificially unconscious, that's a a young, that's his phrase, um, artificially unconscious, then that creates poison. Because the greatest, um, and that's related to that, the greatest toxin or poison in the human psyche is unexpressed creativity. And, and also the idea being some of the greatest thinkers in the world talk about that the second coming is related to us actually tapping into being creative beings, that we just can't be passively just waiting for the Messiah to come. No, we are actively participating in the conjuring up and the invocation and the creation of the second coming of the Messiah. And through our participation in the creative process, that is our nature. We're made in the image of our creator. And all of that's related. That has to do with the apocalyptic times, the Messiah, the second coming, it all comes down to if we have the courage to express ourselves creatively. Because if you remember, I said encoded in the daimon is our creative spirit. But if we turn away from it, it consolates negatively and becomes a demon. So we need to starve the beast and feed the creative uh, and be creators. Is yeah, well, we, but we are creative. We are creatives. We are every moment we're creating our experience. There is no one else who's creating our experience. We are creating our experience of ourselves. We're creating our experience of the world. There's nothing else that's doing that. We're doing that. You know, this is exactly what quantum physics was pointing at, you know, where just in essence, before quantum physics, you know, scientists thought, oh, this world objectively exists and we're just trying to, you know, to um, contemplate it, you know, as passive observers trying to understand how it worked. And then quantum physics comes along and empirically proved again and again, no, there is no such thing as an objective world that's separate from our consciousness, that that's a nonsensical idea that doesn't have any correlation to actual reality. It's only an idea in our head. And it's a wrong idea. It's a mistaken idea. And what quantum physics in essence discovered is that the act of observing this universe actually influences the universe observed. That is a description of a dream. Quantum physics, and I want to be clear on this, has absolutely empirically shown and proven and expressing the dreamlike nature of reality. Now, it's very controversial. People are like, oh, what is the meaning of quantum physics? But one thing there's no controversy about is that everybody who knows about quantum physics says this is the greatest discovery ever in all of history of science. And But the controversy is what does it mean? And I I wrote my book on quantum physics, basically saying what it means is that we're dreaming. 
that it's showing us it's a dream, that it's pointing at the dream, and it's an expression of the dreamlike nature that it's revealing. And when you see that, you begin to realize, holy cow, my act of observation is creative. The way I interpret this reality, the, the for example, in the experiments in quantum physics, the way they set up the experiment, the questions they asked, how they interpreted the data influenced the answer they got from the experiment. In that same way, we ourselves are interpreting our experience. We're the, the generators of meaning onto the inkblot of the waking dream. And then, but if we don't know that, we then become entranced thinking that we're just seeing objective reality. Because think about it, in a dream, if you're in a dream and you hold a viewpoint that the dream is objective, well, what is a dream but a reflection of your own mind? So then the dream will give you all the evidence confirming your point of view that the dream is objective. Now you have all the proof you need confirming your viewpoint that the dream is objective, separate from you. And by doing that, you then created yourself as a subject that's separate from the object of the dream. And that's that self-reinforcing, self-generated feedback loop whose origin is your own mind. You've hypnotized yourselves right there. Quantum physics is the medicine for Watiko. It's showing us, no, there is, if we think there's an objective, you know, this world out there is separate from us. No, that's the illusion. Okay. And the act of observation is creative, which is pointing at, we have this immense creative power. Each one of us, we already have it. Like I've been saying, what my work is about is trying to like actually introduce people to the lived experience of that. And then when we connect with each other, with that awareness, with that, with that lucidity, with that open heartedness, because the energetic expression of that realization is compassion. We can get in sync with each other and get in phase with each other. And we can, in a literal way, dream the waking dream different. And that's what this is all about. That's to fully participate in our own evolutionary process. And that's what, that's, what's available to us. That's uh, very, very, very well said. I know that we are out of time. Uh, unfortunately, uh, I feel like I could sit and chat with you about this for quite a while, uh, right, but really. Uh, let me ask uh, just a final question. Um, where can people find out more about you and your work? Yeah, well, thank you. So I, I have this website, um, awakeninthedream.com. And um, it's, it's newly getting reconfigured as we speak around the new book. And on the website, you know, you can get my books, autograph copies, or if people can work with me, do sessions, but, you know, other than that, it's all just free. It's all just a ton of articles. And, um, you know, in like this interview will be up there, you know, other interviews or talks I give, because I'm just wanting to get this information out. And um, because it's really, really helpful and it can really inspire people. Yeah. So that's, um, that's where people, and then on the website, you can also contact me and, um, you know, yeah, and send me an email or something. So, so that's the way to connect with me. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, I, again, I really appreciated finding your work because it just spoke to me on things that, as I said, I'd been intuiting anyway. I do have one really quick final question for you, if you don't mind. Uh, I was just curious. Uh, you said that you've got another book coming out on Latico yeah. and you're planning a fourth. Yeah. Yeah. But it might be helpful for some people who have read your previous book on dispelling Latico how yeah. is that one different from the one you just published? Yeah, no, thanks. And the one I just published, in essence, 
this one that's you know the book launches this week and the book formally becomes available next week and i already am selling copies off of my website it's really about it's taking the ideas that i articulated in the initial dispelling with tico book and it's more just unfolding them and amplifying them and pointing out a lot of the book is pointing out you know and there are chapters how you know these different spiritual traditions are pointing at Waitiko in their own ways, not just spiritual traditions, but philosophers and thinkers and spiritual teachers and artists. You know, they're all pointing at Waitiko just in their own one-of-a-kind way. And so the book is is really kind of focused on that. Well, I, I do encourage everyone to read it. I think it's a uh, incredible book and uh, full of good ideas. And um, uh, we need we need we need to starve the beast. <laughs> And uh, yeah, yeah. So, uh, Paul, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Um, and I appreciate it speaking with you today. For sure. No, I just really am appreciative of you too. So thank you so much. All right. Well, thank you. And that's a wrap on episode 23 of Rebel Spirit Radio. Thank you so much for listening or watching if you are part of my YouTube audience. If you enjoyed this podcast, please make sure to give it a positive rating on whatever platform you use to listen to podcasts. It only takes a second and your five-star ratings really do help. If you have a minute to spare, consider posting a short but positive review and please consider subscribing. For those viewing on YouTube, please give this video a thumbs up and subscribe to the channel. Make sure you hit that notification bell so you will be informed when I upload new content. I've been releasing episodes uh, weekly and would like to continue doing so. I'm also working on creating additional video content for the YouTube channel, uh, including book reviews, educational videos on topics concerning spirituality, the history of religion, and the religious response to the climate crisis. But that extra content takes a lot of time and work. If you would like to support me in creating free and credible material on YouTube uh, and continuing with this podcast, please consider making a one-time donation via PayPal. You can find a link for that in the video description or show notes. Your support makes this podcast possible. I'm Nick Mather, and you've been listening to Rebel Spirit Radio. Until next time, may you be in peace, may you flourish in all possible ways, and may you continue to nurture your rebel spirit.